me about two months ago, Pastor Ted asked me, uh, would you mind coming in and speaking on worship? And like I was telling Vic and Bill here, the subject of worship really could go probably two, three, four months uh, in extension because there's just so much involved in it and it's such a mysterious thing. And, uh, but it's such an exciting thing to discuss. So I personally am really excited about being here with you guys tonight uh, to just unpack what God's Word says about it and the, the journey that He's taken me on. But uh, before we dive into this, let's have a word of prayer, okay? God, we want to come into this place this evening and acknowledge that you are the creator of this universe. You're the one that created us, and you created us to worship you in spirit and in truth, with heart and mind. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place, that you would open our minds and our hearts to be receptive to, you, to your word. This isn't my word, this is your word. So we commit this to you and ask that you would be honored and ask that you would be glorified. We pray, God, that this would uh, transform our lives and uh, take us to a new, an, a new understanding, a deeper understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ, both privately and corporately. So, Lord, I ask that personally you would breathe into me you would speak through me, and uh, that you ultimately would be honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, tonight, uh, obviously the title speaks for itself, but we're going to talk specifically about some theological foundational principles of worship, and in particularly our priestly role. Okay, if you think about a swimmer, a swimmer who understands the art and the physicality of swimming will no doubt be a successful swimmer. In the same way, a congregation that understands worship will be a more effective worshiper, will actually engage in worship. But we're often blinded to this understanding because we, we place so much of our focus and affections in the wrong direction. We're all guilty of that. Let's face it. We live in an ever-changing world. Things all around us are in a constant state of flux. So much so that it's often difficult to keep up the pace. We want so desperately just to shout, slow down, please slow down. I know I think about that for me. I have a five-year-old. It feels like he was just born yesterday. And I'm saying, slow down, slow down. And that's what we're saying. But the reality is the, time, the clock keeps ticking, and it's not going to slow down. Evangelical Christianity, too, is in a constant state of change. And it's this constant change that we wrestle with in the church. When change occurs, because it's so unfamiliar, we usually react with resistance and guardedness. We all like, regardless of what season of life we're in, we like what's familiar, we like what's comfortable. But even though change is so complex, we have to recognize that evangelicalism has an unchanging message and an ever-changing culture. A mentor friend of mine once said years ago, it's like when you take a gift and you put new wrapping around it. No matter the wrapping you put around it, it doesn't change the very essence of the gift itself. So in light of this, it's crucial that we do not confuse the message from the method. This has to reign true also in terms 
of how we view and how we understand worship. For so many years, there have been countless discussions and debates and wars over music styles in the church. And because music has been made the object of our affections, instead of really making God the object of our affections and worship, our churches have become divided, hindering any level of transformation in our lives. If we dig deep into church history, we can very well see how people have been so focused on the method and not the message. Martin Luther once said when talking about all the different styles of music in corporate worship, he says, quote, anyone who didn't appreciate the beauty of these multi-part pieces, and if you understand anything about church music history, at one point in time, it was one note that was sung. There was not a lot of harmony. When harmony came into play, huge uproar in the church. When extra rhythms came in the church, huge uproar in the church. But what he says is anyone who does not appreciate the beauty of these multi-part pieces and view them as a gift from God, I love his words, must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Talk about a man of boldness. Luther was wholeheartedly committed to congregational singing, but the battles over music and its style and its use continued for generations. It still happens to this day. Believe it or not, there are even debates over singing or playing versus ear and note. British churches argued about using hymns of human composure. What's also interesting is at one time, people would still walk out of a service if someone started singing something other than a psalm that was set to music. We capitalize so much on style and capitalize so much on method and fail to value what we should truly be valuing. Our attitude towards God privately and corporately are things God looks at. We should, be, we should value the movement of God in our hearts, also the understanding in our mind. But I'd venture to say that in general, and you'll see this in your notes, this is your first uh, point here. As the body of Christ, we do not know or understand what worship really is or how to well define it from a biblical perspective. Again, we do not know or understand what worship really is. We understand certain concepts and certain aspects about it, but we don't fully understand it. And I want to personally tell you guys, for the last several years of my life, I've been on this journey, on this trek, digging deeper into God's word, trying to understand what this means. Because I know for me as a musician, when it's been left to just the music, it's left me cold. It's left me dry. It can't just be about the music. It has to be something deeper than just the music. So in the last several years, I've been on this journey trying to understand from God's word what it means to really worship, what worship of God looks like. And I know that if I can gain that understanding, that not only makes me that much more of an effective follower of God, it actually helps me become a more successful leader in the area of ministry that God's called me into. But here's the thing. As important as it is for me to understand that, I want you guys to know that it's important for me that the people that are serving in platform ministry on Sunday mornings understands this too. It's equally important for me that the congregation understand this as well. And we'll unpack this a little bit more as we get further on in the evening. We know that we're not perfect. 
And we accept the fact that as Christians, we're forgiven. But to simply use this as an excuse for not becoming all that God desires us to be is nothing short of disappointing. We've been forgiven to be different. And we must remember this on a daily basis. We've been justified so that we can be sanctified. And God is committed to making us more like Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we behold the Lord's glory, the Spirit of God is at work to transform us into the image of God's Son. And this is one of the primary reasons that we gather as the body of Christ. It's to behold and then be changed. But how can we behold and then be changed with a lack of understanding in our minds and a lack of movement in our hearts? In your notes, in order to offer God a worship that is acceptable and honoring to him, we have to understand what worship is and understand the role we play as priests of God. So tonight, we're going to unpack specifically some of these foundational principles about who we are as worshipers of God and how our lives should function both privately and corporately. And we'll, dig, we'll actually do this by digging a little bit further into Old Testament history and particularly touching on Moses' tabernacle. Because Moses' tabernacle is used as a pattern as pointing to a heavenly reality of access. So we'll look into the priesthood. So here's the thing. Throughout the evening here, I'm going to ask you a question. And like our first one, we'll get to this. You'll see, I'll ask, who are you? And you'll come back and you will say, I am a priest. Okay, so as we delve further into this, okay, I need you guys to, to talk back with me here. So let's dive in. Buckle your seatbelts, okay? People often equate their identity with what they do. All too often, every single one of us is guilty of that. If you think about a football player, a football player sees themselves as a football player because they're playing football. His identity, however, will most likely be damaged if he's not playing football on the football field. And when this happens, he feels his sense of value is lost. We as Christians should first identify how God looks at us and the identity that he's given us. And if we look into scripture, we see that we're called children of God. We're called beloved. We're called the redeemed. We're called chosen. Again, tonight, we're going to unpack the identity of a priest of God. If you look in 1 Peter 2.5, it says, and I believe this is in your notes, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So you can see, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have been called into a priesthood. So, who are you? I am a priest. We are all priests. Now, when you think about that, just take a moment here and think of that. I am a priest. What does that 
What happens in you when you think about that? Is there a greater sense of responsibility that comes into play? When we think of priests, we think about that. There's a great sense of responsibility we have. Because of Jesus Christ, God has given us this identity of priest. And even in the scripture verse, we can see our basic job description that's, that's uh, being lined out for us. Now, here's the thing. Who I see myself as makes a huge, huge difference in the way that I function in my life. One of my favorite, favorite scripture verses, and I've really adopted this as my own, and some of you in here know this, is Romans 12, 1 through 2, which is often used in any sort of biblical study or discussion on worship. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. And that basically tells us that we're supposed to be living a life of worship. And that's a huge responsibility. So if I see myself as a priest of God, knowing that I need to be functioning differently in my life, how does that transcend into this corporate setting? If as a congregation member, I see the, plat- the people on the platform as the priests, then that relieves me. If I'm in the congregation, that relieves me of any kind of responsibility of functioning as a priest. However, if the entire congregation sees themselves as priests, then that identification changes the way they function the way they relate to God, and the way they relate to the world around them. So again, I ask you, who are you? I'm a priest. Hold on to that. Okay, now that we've established that we're priests, we're going to take a look specifically at what a priest does. It's our job description. The first thing, it's in your notes, the first thing a priest does is build tabernacles. Now, some of you in this room uh, that have been either in the choir, on the vocal team, or the band, we've unpacked some of this stuff, so this is review for you, but I hope it's refreshing still, nonetheless. As a priest, our first job responsibility is to build tabernacles, or build meeting places. In Moses' tabernacle, the Levites specifically were responsible for building or setting up the tabernacle. They were responsible for carrying all the articles that were held in the tabernacle as well. If we actually dig in deeper to understand the very basic meaning of tabernacle, it simply means tent, okay? Hebrews call the tabernacle the tent of meeting or the tent of congregation. And what this implies is that people went to the tabernacle expecting to meet God. Now think about that. Do we come to the tabernacle on any given Sunday morning expecting to meet God? I think sometimes we all, every one of us, loses sight of that. But we should come expecting to meet God. And that's what happened in the Old Testament times. Every time they went to the tabernacle, they went with some level of expectation. Now, here's here's how this relates to, to us as priests. Only priests, according to God's mandate, were allowed to set up tabernacle. Only priests were allowed to set up the meetings with God. Again, who you are makes a huge difference as to what you're able to do. So as a priest, everywhere I go is an opportunity to tabernacle. Not just in this place, but also at home, in the workplace, in the grocery store, 
even in a car, when you've got the person in front of you that's going about 10 miles below the speed limit, got to be very careful about that. But everywhere we go is an opportunity to create intersections between God and man. And that's part of the joy of the priesthood. Let me tell you, personally for me, when I'm up here on this platform, I'm really, really excited about creating an opportunity for you to meet God. But I can't do it alone. I need you. We all need each other to do that. So, quick recap. Who are we? What is your first job description? Tabernacle. You can even just say tabernacle. That works very easily. Now, the second thing that you do as a priest is you carry the presence of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 10, 8 through 9, we read, At the time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name, as they still do today. That is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. So in biblical history, the priests were the Levites, and the Levites carried the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. And today, we're considered modern-day or spiritual Levites. Now again, here's a problem. If a congregational member sees the people on the platform as the only ones who carry the presence of God, then they're always going to be going to someone else to intercede on their behalf. They're always going to be going to someone else to rightly divide the word of God. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that we don't go to someone and ask for prayer. And it doesn't mean we we don't go to a Sunday school classroom or to a small group setting to have someone teach us the word of God. But we've also been given the opportunity, the privilege, and the ability to do that as well. The issue is they're completely relinquishing and denying the ability and responsibility they have as a priest of God. So wherever I go as a priest, I carry the presence of God. Much like a United States ambassador carries the rights, the privileges, the authority, and responsibility of a U.S. US citizen wherever they go. And if you read in Scripture, we've seen a number of times, we are called ambassadors of God to this world. So we carry with us the very presence and the very authority of God wherever we go. We are ambassadors to this world. Who are we? Priests. What is our first job responsibility? Tabernacle. What's our second? Carry the presence of God. Now, here's the thing. Just those two elements alone would actually radically change how we view worship. It would radically change how we're living our lives of worship. It would radically change what worship looks like in this space. If we could just grasp that understanding right there. Pardon me? Inter intersection. The intersection right there. I'm not following your question. That should have been intersection right there. It's a typo. I apologize for that. Now, the third responsibility is to minister to God. Minister to his desires, his pleasure, his glory, his will, and his entertainment. Now, here's the thing. This element, this responsibility is something that the people on the platform certainly take uh, a huge um, 
value in, uh, but this still pertains to everyone as well. We're responsible to minister to God. Look at Deuteronomy 10.8. It says, The Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to stand before the Lord to minister. We tend to think that as a priest, our primary responsibility is to minister to man. However, we see here that it's actually our responsibility to first. I catch that. It's our responsibility to first minister to the Lord. It's not our place to minister to man. Additionally, as a worship leader on the platform, it's not my responsibility to first minister to the congregation. Rather, it's to first minister to the Lord himself. This means my primary concern has to be the will of the Lord, his pleasure, and only him alone. Problem is when we get this backwards, we submit the ministry to the cultures and the preferences of man. And keep in mind, the, the culture's preferences, the preferences of man are fallen. We're a fallen people. We're, we're a sinful people. And any ministry that falls short, any ministry will fall short as long as the target of our ministry are people's tastes. The focus must be on the Lord and his tastes. Mind you, we go back to what I said earlier. Culture is always changing. It's always changing. So if we're throwing all of our chips into what the culture is dictating, then it's going to leave everyone cold. And life transformation ultimately isn't going to happen. And ultimately, we're not going to be ministering to the heart of God. The fact remains, when I minister to God, he will minister to the people. Who understands the needs of the people? Do I understand those needs? No. God understands those needs. So I have to trust that he is actually going to care for the needs of the people. So in a worship setting, for example, I have to minister to God's heart and trust that he will minister to the needs of the congregation. The cool thing is, is God does choose to use us in some incredible ways to still minister. But we first have to minister to the heart of God. I can't deal with their needs and concerns, but God can. So let's go back. Let's do a little review. Who are you? What is your first responsibility? Build the tabernacle. That's the second responsibility. And the third responsibility, minister to God. Exactly. I can be a much more effective leader if I can step away, if I can get out of the way from the needs and concerns of man. Because then and only then can God actually minister to those needs. Now, here's the other side of it. This fourth responsibility could almost seem a little bit contradictory to the previous element. But please understand, I go back to this word I used a lot. I have to first minister to God. It's my responsibility first to him. Next, as someone who is part of the priesthood of God, it's my responsibility to pronounce blessings in God's name. I have to bless the people. You read further in Deuteronomy 10, in the latter part of verse 8, it says, to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name. A lot of times when we think of blessing people, we think of giving them pleasure or giving them a gift or something that they would like or something that they would want. But all we're really doing is nurturing their soul and appeasing their desires. Remember, they're fallen man and their desires are fallen. In number six, beginning in verse 23, the Lord told Moses to instruct Aaron and the priests to bless the people in this way. 
He says, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord to make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. If we can bless people the way the Bible tells us to bless people, we're ultimately going to be praying over their needs, not so much their wants. And there's a huge difference. Those of us that have children, we, we understand that kids are always saying, I need this, I need that. There was, uh, how many of you ever heard of the comedian Jeff Allen? Some of you have, yeah. Okay, uh, a riot, absolutely, a uh, huge riot. Several years ago, I watched him, and he was saying he was going shopping with his, with his son, and his son was saying, his son was probably 13 years old, and his son kept saying, Dad, I need, I need, I need, I need this pair of shoes that cost 100 bucks. And he looks at his son, and he says, well, how much money do you have? He says, well, I have 40 bucks. And then he says, well, I can tell you what you need, 60 bucks. So you don't need those shoes. You want those shoes. So in the same way, we all have wants, we all have needs, but God's the one that ultimately can minister to those needs. However, God chooses to use us to pronounce blessing in his name, but we bless them in the name of God. God in particularly desires for us to bless people for their future, towards their future. God is all about movement in our lives. He never has called us to settle in our walk with him. We should always be moving from point A to point B to point C. He's called us to a future hope and a future glory. We've all heard the scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and plans to give you a future. When we bless people in this way, we catalyze their destiny. It isn't going to set people up for who God has called them to be if I attempt to bless people by ministering to what their tastes are. But if I'm able to see through the eyes of God who he intends for them to be, who he desires them to be, in my blessing, I'm able to help them walk in God's destiny. And that is true blessing. As priests of God, we should be calling people into their priesthood. If we bless people from the world's perspective, then they'll remain who they comfortably are. But if we bless people through the eyes of heaven, we'll propel them into God's destiny for them. So again, a review. Who are we? What's our first responsibility? Tabernacle. Second responsibility? Carry the presence of God. That's it. You can still work on that a little bit. Third thing? Minister to God. Fourth thing? Bless the people. Exactly. So if we can understand who we are as a priest, embody our responsibilities, the tabernacle, to carry the presence of God, to minister to God, and to pronounce blessing in the people, then true worship can take place, both on a personal and a corporate level. This is what honors God, and this is actually obedience to who God has called us to be. And we all know obedience is far greater than sacrifice. So, again, just for practice, who are we? The first responsibility, build tabernacle. Second responsibility, carry the presence of God. Third thing, minister to God. Fourth thing, bless the people, exactly. Now, now we've established some of these responsibilities and understand our identity as priests. 
let's actually delve a little bit further into the tabernacle. So why did God have Moses build the tabernacle? God simply wanted to be near his people. He wanted to have access to his people. Exodus 25, 8 says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Exodus 29, 44, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Once the tent of meeting and Aaron have been consecrated, then we see in Exodus 29, 45, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. Exodus 29, verse 46. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. We consecrate a place, consecrate a priesthood, then God will dwell among them. If you think about it, we've heard, for two or more gather together in the name of the Lord, there God will be present. God wants his people to have access to him. He wants his people to come near him. He wants to dwell among his people. But to do this, he has to, and this is in your notes, next point, he has to teach his people how to approach him. Again, God has to teach his people how to approach him. We've read before, come boldly before the throne of grace. There's a difference between having permission to approach the throne and the ability to approach the throne. Jesus Christ has given us permission to go before the presence of God. The mistake we make in the church is we give everyone permission to come into the presence of God, but we haven't equipped them with the ability. They don't understand how. They don't even, they, they, yeah, they don't understand how, or even that they have the ability to do it. Moses' tabernacle is a pathway of worship. And there was a protocol to entering the presence of God. There's a protocol, even an etiquette, to approaching the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We actually define the word protocol. It's a strict adherence to correct etiquette and procedure. The tabernacle is a pattern or model pointing to a heavenly reality of access. Hebrews 8.5 says, they, meaning the Old Testament priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, if you think about a shadow, there's obviously something physical, something tangible that's in front of it. And the tabernacle was a shadow of Jesus Christ. Behind every shadow, there's a physical object that can be touched. The tabernacle was a shadow. The tabernacle is one of the keys to what is actually going on in heaven in worship. In your notes, the tabernacle is a reflection of a heavenly reality of access. Now, when it came to building the tabernacle, there were six requirements. The tabernacle had to be built by free will offerings. It's in your notes. That's your first point there. The tabernacle had to be built by free will offerings. Exodus 25, 2 says, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. In this verse, God stirred up the people to give. 
Exodus 35, 21, everyone whom his spirit made willing. If it's not with a heart that's willing, it doesn't matter. And that doesn't count as worship. So the first point, the tabernacle had to be built by free will offerings. Second thing, the tabernacle had to be built by people whose hearts are moved. Exodus 35, verse 21, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. Passion comes from the Spirit of God. Conviction comes from the Spirit of God. Man cannot move a person's heart. Man can move man's emotion, but not man's heart. Only God can. The Lord wants our hearts and he wants our minds. It's necessary to have both. Number three, the tabernacle had to be built by God's wisdom. Tabernacle had to be built by God's wisdom. Exodus 36, 1, and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that the Lord had commanded. Proverbs 13, 12, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. It requires, it requires God's wisdom. Just because I have a model of doing something doesn't mean that that's the way God is going to do it the next time. We should seek out God's wisdom all the time, every single day, every month, every year. Everything in the tabernacle means something based on God's wisdom. I want you guys to know that when it comes to planning of our worship services, Denny and I are very particular. Everything has a purpose. It's not just because. It's because we like it, don't like it, or, or whatever. It, it has a purpose. There's intentionality behind it. If there was intentionality behind everything in the tabernacle, there's going to be intentionality here in our worship services. If we don't seek the wisdom of God, we're going to be giving people a false picture of what he wants for them. It's imperative that we seek his wisdom. So, first three requirements had to be with free will offerings. Second one, people's hearts had to be moved. The third, it had to be built by God's wisdom. Fourth thing, the tabernacle had to be built by skillful people. We have a king who is deserving of the absolute best. There's no value and there's no virtue in mediocrity in the kingdom of God. If in whatever I do, I'm not doing it to the very best of my ability, then I'm not worshiping God with that. Whatever it is you're truly called to minister in, you're going to have the spirit of God to do it. You're going to have the skill to do it. And you're going to invest in the skill to do it. In this also, you should have the right character as you go about doing it. Reject mediocrity. Now, here's the thing. Just because it's done with excellence doesn't mean that it's inauthentic. So if you have the right attitude and the right character and you're doing it to honor God and you're giving your absolute best, then that ultimately is going to honor God. Exodus 36.1 says, And every skilled person are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Chapter 31 of Exodus, verse, uh, starting at verse 1, says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. Expect 
the absolute best for the kingdom of God. If anybody deserves the best, it's our king, it's our Lord, it's our savior, it's our God. I want to encourage you guys to actually dive in further to the book of Exodus because there are some unbelievable uh, elements and study on all the specific things that God required of people within the tabernacle. The tabernacle also had to be built by people filled with the Spirit of God. It's point five. If we try to worship in our own wisdom and in our own strength without the Spirit of God, then we're beating our heads against a brick wall. We have to be walking in the power of the Spirit of God. So again, free will offerings, hearts that are moved, God's wisdom, skillful people, the Spirit of God. Here's the sixth thing. The tabernacle had to be built according to the pattern, the pattern that God lined out. In Exodus 25, 40, see to it that you make them, and he's talking about the lampstands in the tabernacle, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. It's a priest's responsibility to know how to do his job in all its patterns. Ignorance is very, very dangerous. So we should be looking to God's patterns, looking to the scriptures. When we ignore God's patterns, we put God's people in danger. So these are, these are key things. Again, I want to encourage you guys to open the book of Exodus and study this a little bit further. But the tabernacle was a very special place. The tabernacle is a very special place today, too. Everywhere we go, it's tabernacle. We're creating those intersections with God. Now, here's the thing. As a congregation, we have to, we have, to have an understanding of who we are. Who are we? We are priests. And then what our responsibilities are and what the depth and meaning of these things are. And if we do, then it could change our outlook on worship. It could change the way we worship. It could change the way we look at ourselves and the world around us. What would then be the object of our affections? What would we ultimately value? What, think about this, what would the climate in this space look like on Sunday morning? If every person that walked into this room saw themselves as a priest of God and understood what their responsibility was, I'm going to go off the page here briefly. Vic and I were talking before the service or before the, uh, the session tonight. And he was saying how oftentimes we talk about examining our hearts before we partake of the sacraments in communion. And he asked the question, and I appreciate this question. Do we evaluate our hearts before we come in here on Sunday mornings for worship service? And I said, I don't think we do. But if we really pause. And I know life is crazy. I know sometimes we have arguments with our spouses or our kids on the car ride here. But what is it that we are walking into this place expecting? We mentioned that earlier. What are we coming to the table of God with? Are we willing to give him everything that is of us? Are we willing to understand our responsibility when we come into this place? If we would embrace that understanding then it would be unbelievable what would happen. Our lives would be transformed and the lives of people around us would be transformed 
and we would see the Spirit of God move in this place like none other. I'm not saying an emotionalism experience. Look, we're all emotional people. Okay, God created us with emotion. So emotion isn't bad. Emotion is actually, someone actually defined it this way for me. Emotionalism is actually in unto itself. Emotion is a means to something different. You know, God created us to love. He created us to be joyful. He created us to, to clap our hands, to shout for joy. And he created us to actually sit in quietness. And there's an emotion that's involved in that. But if we come into this place expecting God to move, if we come into this place with something to give, God would radically transform our lives. So then what would, then, what would be the object of our affections? Every single week, we're all tempted by idols and we're deceived by sin. And people who attend our services and gatherings, Christian or not, come with all sorts of misconceptions about what we're doing. We forget at times what we already know, actually. One of my favorite uh, authors is a guy named Bob Coughlin, and actually Denny quoted him a few weeks ago in a message. But he says in his book, Worship Matters, what was once a faith-filled encounter with the living God has become a dull, same as every week experience that leaves us cold. We need to be reminded what a life altering, awe-inspiring event worshiping God really is. We understand what true worship is, what our role is in it, and how to worship biblically. The realities we declare in the corporate worship setting will be proclaimed in our daily lives. The way we think about Sunday mornings will connect more with the way we go about the rest of our week and how we love our families and how we resist temptation, and how we proclaim the gospel. We then become the worshiping church. We'll also be more receptive to change. I mentioned earlier, we'll recognize that just because methods change doesn't mean the message changes. So remember the message. Remember who you are. Remember what your responsibility is. Remember what Christ has done for you. All of this is a matter of infinite importance. It's a matter of infinite importance that the whole mind and the whole heart be engaged steadfastly for God. Is it a matter of infinite importance for you? I know it is for God. When it becomes a matter of infinite importance to us, we'll begin to grasp what sort of effect it can have on us as a church body and as worshipers of God. We'll function more in our priestly role and find ourselves regularly being changed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Being a light on the hill to the dark fallen world we live in. And in turn seeing souls running to the feet of their maker. And we'll most likely see pe people walking around from our corporate tabernacle gatherings more amazed by God. And less amazed by our facilities. Less amazed by our music, our programs. And that would be incredible. I can't tell you guys how desperately I want us, all of us, to grasp this understanding. I can't describe for you how much I want all of us to be transformed, how much I want all of us to be changed. When I set foot up here on a Sunday morning, I want us to meet God, and I want us to be changed. Christ has done so, so much for us, and he's called us to something far greater than ourselves. 
We have to step up. We have to step up. Something that um, pastoral staff uh, desperately desires out of our church is that we're being transformed by faith and that we're growing in the wisdom of God and that we're intentional in our service and intentional in our relationships. But that's going to be us understanding what role we play in all of that. That requires a transformation of our hearts and of our minds. And certainly my prayer and my desire is that we'll be more effective God worshipers each and every day. And especially when we come into this corporate worship setting, that we'll be the effective God worshipers that he desires us to be. A quick recap. Who are we? We're priests. What is our first job responsibility? Build tabernacles. Second, carry the presence of God. Third, minister to the heart of God. And fourth, pronounce blessings. I know this is a chunk, and I want you guys to know I'm still chewing on this stuff. It's a lot. A lot of this is fresh over the last few months of understanding. And um, I was even telling Vic earlier, the subject of worship, I don't know what you came expecting when you see worship. What's he going to talk about? Um, It's such a mysterious thing. And there are so many aspects and components to worship. But what's at the heart of it? It requires an understanding of who Christ is and the work that he's done on the cross. And it requires us being moved by his spirit. It requires us understanding how we should be living our lives. So um, I know Ted said I had an hour. I think I did it in 40, 50 minutes, something like that. There's a, there's a lot. Sure. Am I going too fast for you guys? You're an old dude. You, got to, you have to chew on a little bit more. A little, little bit more. Okay. If as a congregation, are you talking about uh, A? If as a congregation, we're just having an understanding of who we are, what our responsibilities are. And um, let me find it in here because you have the notes. We understand what true worship is, what our role is. And you've got me lost, actually. And what the depth and meaning of these things are. It could change our outlook on worship. Okay. If it could change the way we worship, it could change the way we look at ourselves and the world around us. Can we repeat that again? I have no problem doing that. I can, I'm the same way too, though. Next one, uh, point B. If we understand what true worship is, what our role is in it, and how to worship biblically, the realities we declare in the corporate worship setting will be proclaimed in our daily lives. Our daily lives. The way we think about Sunday mornings will connect more with the way we go about the rest of the week and how we love our families, how we resist temptation, how we love our families, resist temptation, proclaim the gospel we then become the worshiping church. You need the next one as well? I have no problem doing that. Great, it's an encore presentation. All of this is a matter of infinite importance. It's a matter of infinite importance 
that the whole mind and heart be engaged steadfastly for God. And D, is it a matter of infinite importance to you? It certainly is to God. Bill? Mm Mm-hmm. All the way back to page one. Mm -hmm. Intersections. Intersections. It's, It's intersections. Yeah, and that was that question you had earlier. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Do I have uh, some of this? I do have written out. Yeah. Let me look here. Let me look here. It's going back. Mind you, I have 12 pages of script here. Oh, let's see here. Um, it's after the. This is 29. Okay. Okay. And you were saying the tabernacle. Yeah, the tabernacle is a pathway of worship. The point C, it's of a heavenly reality of access. Mm-hmm. I did go off the page a couple of times. Yeah, that was probably when I was going more or less off the page a little bit. So basically, if I'm understanding you correctly in that, is that, yeah, the, the, the culture is always changing. The trend is always changing. If we can just make sure to remember Again, going back to that original point, that the message has to stay true. So that maybe that staying that course that we were talking about, it's always going to be changing. How we actually present it isn't always changing the very essence of the message itself. So stay the course with the message. I like actually your word there, and staying the course. Mm-hmm. 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 Mhm. We are the church. I mean we're sheep but we're but we're the church too. Yeah. Yes. Mhm. Yeah. Bill. Mhm. He wanted to be near them. Um, it's access. Access. So he's saying at the bottom of page one, purpose of the tabernacle, A, he wanted to be near them. Just access. Another way of defining that. When people have access to God. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Pathway. Or model. That's another word you can use. There's a lot to chew on. I want to make sure we get all the blanks filled so you can take this, take this with you. Yes, sir.
Yeah, I mean, we are the temple. I, I, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which, which goes back to the point that, you know, we are responsible for hosting Tabernacle. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Trust me, been there. Been there. <laughs> I think we all have been there before. But yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Any, any other questions? Again, I'm on this. I'm on this journey too. I'm real excited about it. God's been totally shaking my world up with all of this. So basically, how to keep your how to keep your your heart and your spirit uh, palpable in the hands of God and, and 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 moldable. I mean, obviously, there are certain prayers lined out in Scripture that you can use uh, that that help you, but it can't just be the words. It really requires a faith. It's really about a faith. What it boils down to. Um, there's different. Um, oh, I mean, for me, uh, some practical ways I try to keep myself teachable is. Yes, I pray very specifically, God, please keep me humble. But I also make sure that I'm very intentional about putting people in my life that will hold me accountable and that are willing to speak some tough love to me. So um, influences in life. Opening up scripture, Proverbs is a great place to go to for that. So there, yeah, there are some practical things, but there is that mysterious element that faith plays in all of this. And I think that's where that that line so thinly sliced, and I think that God um, honors our efforts in that. And then he graces us with the ability, because of the Spirit of God, um, to be teachable. So, but there are practical things. She was asking, how can we keep ourselves uh, soft and teachable to God? What are some practical things? And that's that whole, even some of that faith without works stuff as well. It requires a little bit of both, a little bit of a dance. What else? You guys used to go in an hour and 15, hour? Yeah. He goes an hour. Yeah. He just walked in a bit ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Get your donut and get your coffee in the cafe. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I understand that. Yes. Yes, it does. For all of us. Every single one of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I understand that. You know, and that's uh, and you could liken it to a reverence. Uh, and, and reverence isn't always equated with a certain mood always. It's more about the attitude of your heart towards God. Um, and, 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 is a, and is a fine, it helps. No, I, I get you on that. But part of how the Spirit of God works in us is that connection that we have with other believers. And so that's part of that, that's part of that fellowship. And that happens, that happens every, and that's part of, part of this too is, this, this life of worship is encompassed. This is why I, I told Vic, I said, we could do 12 sessions, two months worth of all this sort of stuff. This uh, part of this life of worship is the communing with the body of Christ in the doors, out the doors, wherever we go. So it's, it's, um, it, it, it's both of those. Mm-hmm. 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 And it's especially if everyone sets foot into this place with, a, with that deep understanding. And like, like you said, sometimes it's rough. It's rough when you've got the craziness of the week and the craziness of Sunday and all. It's hard. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to get to that place. And, and so there's different ways that that can be cultivated, for sure. So many different ways that that can be cultivated. And that's always being explored. Always. Mm-hmm. 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 And living in us. Live, yeah. Wherever we go. Like I said, everywhere we go is an opportunity for that. Didn't we? Mm-hmm. 
things she was saying, if, for those of you who didn't hear, is that really in many ways it's not even just generational. It is a, a American mindset that we go to some place to get. And when we come to church, it should be the reverse. We go to give praise and honor to God. We minister to his heart. In turn, after that, he will give us that which we ultimately need. Not want, what we need. But that does take a lot of discipline to change that mindset. Duh. <laughs> and and the thing the thing is is that is that yes the spirit of God does dwell within us. He does create spaces or we've created spaces even such as a sanctuary for all of the body of Christ to come together and then we're two or more gathered together in his name, there he will be. Now he is with us, but there is there's something, this is the mysterious part about it. There is something very unique, and maybe that's part of it, is that there's something very unique when the people of God come together to adore him and behold him. There's a, there's a different, lack of a, lack of a better word I can think of as power. There's a different uh, sense, a different presence. Um, but it's, um, so it's, it's kind of, yes, it's both and, um, but we have to, have to understand that. Bill, you...
decision over the last few years to wake up way earlier before my family wakes up because then there are all those distractions you know I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old immediate distraction <laughs> and then I don't like it when they wake up too early you know I'm like oh, I needed that time but yeah when I wake up and that's part of that's uh, part of back to that Romans 12 thing is it requires a daily renewing of your mind and so when you wake up are you willing to say God this day is for you and you alone do that within me that you need to do. Teach me your ways, O oh Lord. So, it's a lot, a whole lot of stuff. But um, I know for me personally, as I have um, dived into this, dove into this, uh, English teachers are probably going crazy by that, but I'm from the South. Everything works originally. So, um, as I've gotten into this a little bit further, it's just uh, helped me realize that, yes, there's a huge responsibility that, that I play on Sunday morning up here on this platform, but I want us to realize that all of us have a responsibility, and, uh, and, and all of us, lack of a better word, get it, um, and here's the reality, too. We'll never ultimately arrive until we get to heaven. Um, but I think God will respect and honor our efforts and our desires to understand this more, uh, more deeply. Because uh, he's wanting to perfect us into the image of Jesus Christ. And uh, if we're willing to lay aside our own, uh, our own just um, human thoughts and allow God's wisdom to illuminate us, I think we'll really see some incredible things happen. So, anyway. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity. I appreciate this. If you have any more questions, I'm always willing to talk. Um, Ted's willing to talk. Denny's willing to talk. Um, we're here. So um, let me pray. Let me pray for us before we go. God, you are so vast and far beyond our own human comprehension. And each one of us uh, dictates our reality based on experiences in life. And although they can be valid, ultimately everything has to be measured up against your wisdom as you line out for us in your word. And I pray for every single one of us in this room and quite frankly, Lord, everybody that walks into this place every Sunday, that we would have willing hearts. That we would be, as the psalmist says, teach me your ways, O God. 
so that I can walk in you. Oh God, purify us from ourselves. Cleanse us. Make us new. Make us a people that really shine as the stars. A people that live a life of worship. A people that pursue relationship with you and not just a religion with you. I ask God that uh, you would transform us from the inside out. Shape us and mold us into the effective God worshipers that you have called us to be, both privately and corporately. Thank you for the opportunity for us to come together and share, to talk, discuss, to learn. What an incredible privilege that is for us to do. When I think about this morning with the, the children that were here from other countries, they often don't have that freedom. And it's a freedom that we have here in this country. I pray, God, that we would never squander that. Never take it for granted. Thank you, Jesus, for illuminating our minds. Continue to do so. In your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.